this is rather a thank you for the people that had joined Paul in ministry. And a little bit of a warning for those that had fallen away, but, but principally, uh, he talks about these faithful servants that had joined him, been a part, had been sent out. You know, one of the blessings and also the difficulties of being in pastoral ministry specifically, but really a part of the body of Christ, is that you make these deep, lasting friendships, and those friendships sometimes are broken up by somebody being called away or sent out, and uh, maybe they move to another part of the country or another part of the world, and you may never see them again on this earth, but know this, uh, there is a reunion coming, uh, and the Lord will bring us all back together in this heavenly kingdom, uh, and Sometimes we go through that bit of suffering while we're here on this earth of, of departed friendships or maybe even uh, problems that occurred. But as the Lord works by His grace in each of our lives uh, and works out the details of those difficulties because there are times that we being human and God being perfect, we're, we're attempting to accomplish His will on this earth. Uh, we're not perfect at that. We fail at that. We maybe wound a friendship or harm someone. Uh, perhaps there's a, a sense of brokenness in a relationship, but know this, uh, the Lord's going to make all those things just perfect by the time we all get to heaven. Amen? And so this morning, lessons in being faithful. And if you would uh, bow your heads and let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us by His Word. Father, I thank You for those faithful men and women, Lord, in this ministry and those that have aided and helped, Lord, in, in my own growth, the growth of this church. We pray that you would continue uh, to cause us to bear much fruit for your kingdom, good fruit, abiding fruit, lasting fruit. Uh, we pray that you would minister to our weaknesses, Lord, help us to use our strengths for your glory and for your kingdom. And as we open our minds to receive your word in our hearts, that it might be implanted there. We ask that you'd instruct us. Bless us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pick up in verse 5 as we finish up here in Second Timothy chapter 4. But you, be watchful in all things. After all the instruction that Paul has made to Timothy, he reminds him, be watchful. Keep your eyes open. Look out. And it's not just talking about bad things. He's talking about good things. You know, very often I think the problem uh, that many pastors and really many churches have is that they cease being watchful uh, over the things that are going on in ministry, being willing and open to change, uh, watching God do new things, direct things. You know, this is the Lord's church, and sometimes he simply wants to a maneuver in a new and a fresh way, and we need to be watchful. We need to be thinking about those things. And so he says, you be watchful in, in all things. And then he goes on to say, endure afflictions, uh, because quite frankly, at times, ministry is not easy. It's difficult. Life is not easy. It can be difficult. Uh, our lives are, are in touch with this world, and this world is perishing. It's fading. Uh, one day it's going to be wrapped up like a scroll, uh, but we have work to do while we're here, and sometimes that work is hard. It shouldn't surprise us that things become difficult at times. It shouldn't surprise us that uh, the things that we do for the Lord are not often uh, just simply met with wonder and amazement. You know, sometimes people are very resistant to the things of the Lord. Sometimes they have a an issue with maybe you personally or me personally or the church personally. 
And you have to endure that affliction. You know, people are not going to necessarily like you because you tell them the truth. And he says, do the work an evangelist of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Now, of course, Paul is writing to Timothy, whom he has now sent to the church at Ephesus to pastor that church there. And so uh, the primary emphasis here is to the pastoral calling that someone might have upon their life. But the greater, the broader emphasis here is to all of us. Fulfill your ministry, whatever that ministry is. And you have all been called into ministry. Do you know that? You've been called into ministry. Your ministry may be as a mom. Your ministry might be as a dad. Your ministry could be at work. Your ministry certainly could be as as someone who is instructing someone else who maybe doesn't know the Lord. You have the capacity uh, to be in ministry no matter what your calling is in life. Specifically, you are all in ministry to some degree. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you have Uh, pronounced him as Lord and said, God, change me, use me, mold me, shape me, you're in ministry. Now, that may be that you literally are in ministry. It may be that you're serving in children's ministry. It may be that you're being used in helps. It may be that you're going to help with the Lighter World Festival. You can be used in ministry if you have the desire to be used in ministry. And I want to encourage you, don't make this a, a narrow thing. It is a broad thing. And we must not forget it, because there are people in your life that the Lord has uniquely gifted and called you to reach and minister to. You know, sometimes I I often forget this myself when I deal with youth groups. You know, sometimes we'll have a four or five hundred person camp come in, and you, you look at all these junior hires, and you think, Lord, what good could possibly come from this much chaos? And you, you find out that there are people actually gifted at, at ministering to junior hires who, quite frankly, normally don't know exactly who or what they are. And, and so I realize that there are unique callings and giftings upon people, and, and those that come and, and minister in that environment, maybe you or I are not qualified, maybe you and I are not gifted, maybe you and I... Uh, would fail miserably should we endeavor to do that particular thing, but we all have ministry to do, and so fulfill it. And Paul now begins to to write uh, his his last words. He says, "For I am already being poured out as a drink offering." The the illusion here is that it's his last few days. He, these may have been these words may have been penned uh, within just a day or two of the end of his life. I'm being poured out. Are you being poured out this morning? Are you willing to be poured out this morning? Are you willing to offer your life in the service to the king to the extent that ultimately you will give your life to that calling? And he happens to be talking in this particular sense very finitely about literally being killed, dying. And of course, that would be the greatest sense to which this is true. But there's a deeper sense to it. Are, are you willing to do the difficult thing? Are, are you willing to be used of the Lord in a way that uh, maybe gets you out of your comfort zone? Um, we, especially as Americans, do not like to be out of our comfort zone. We complain rather loudly when we're out of our comfort zone. I, I, I'm kind of enjoying some of these protest rallies and things that are going on around our country about Wall Street and about 
uh, higher education. It's interesting to me that very few of the people that I see in those pictures actually work for a living. Because they think they are entitled to whatever it is everybody else has without having to work for it. Can I tell you this? Life is hard and it's work. It takes an effort on your part to fulfill anything in ministry. And if you're going to be poured out, you're probably going to be stretched out to the end of that which is you. I am constantly. I'm often amazed to the extent at which I forget that at times. It's like, Lord, how could this be happening to me? You know, after all, I've served you probably. And I realize I, I am being poured out. What's left of me in this sense, uh, especially uh, during the feast days, one of the things that would occur is, is they would bring a pitcher of water and that water would be poured out upon the steps of the temple. And it was a sign of that final sacrifice and the work of the Lord in our lives. You know, what's interesting is when that water hits the sun, it evaporates, amen? It disappears. Being poured out is you disappearing in Jesus. It's you being used to the extent that, in essence, you become uh, that which is no longer visible. And and again, that, that strikes against our humanness because we want to be recognized, amen? It's okay, you can say amen. Most people do things, they, they like to be recognized for it. And I'm not talking about those accolades which we should give to encourage people. There's absolutely a place for that. And we need to be gracious and kind and tender-hearted and acknowledge those uh, that are being used. But by the same token, ultimately, it's the Lord that we're seeking to please. It's not me, it's not this church, it's not Pastor Chuck, it is God. We want to be well-pleasing to the Lord. Are you willing to be poured out as a drink offering? And the time of my departure is at hand, and he makes this very clear by the wording he uses, and a little more on that later. He's about over, he's about done, his life is nearly finished. For I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, and I've kept the faith. Notice what it says. He's using the analogy here, and and that keeping the faith is actually the word kept there, is really I've been a steward of the faith. And so he gives these three basic reasonings, two of them from athletics and one of them from banking. He says, I've fought the good fight. I've boxed when I've had to box. I've fought the fight. When When it's been tough, I haven't given up and walked away. You know, I think the thing that most people struggle with is is how far we're going to go before it's too hard. Paul's indicating here that there shouldn't be anything too tough because there's nothing too tough for the Lord. Not because there isn't a a limit to which my human endurance uh, is tested. I, I reach that place virtually every day. One of the things that you desire as a pastor after you've been in the ministry for a while is just to not have to talk. One of the things that I look forward to is not talking. I, I in essence, get paid to talk, okay? That's what pastors do in a sense of a vocation. I'm communicating constantly. I also happen to be a camp director, which requires that I talk constantly, 
Now, people don't like the fact that I talk constantly a lot of times, but the bottom line is, is I like to be able to just not talk. And when someone comes and they ask me a question, you know, there are times I'm just like, Lord, couldn't you just give them an answer like supernaturally or something? I have to fight the good fight because part of me wants to just go, you know, there's got to be somebody else who can answer that question. I have to fight that. My own flesh rears up. So does yours. You know, you're you're sitting there and you probably all have things that you can think of that you just really don't want to do anymore for the Lord. It's like, Lord, could you just change that? And then all of a sudden you realize, hey, it's a fight. It's a battle. It's a war. I finished the race. Family of God, I want to finish the race. I want to finish the race. I don't want to start the race. As I've shared with you before, I, I ran cross-country and long distance for a lot of years. And I can tell you, one of the things you have to overcome as a long-distance runner is that desire that, hey, this I'm not going to win. You're, you're in the middle of, of a huge race like the Mount Sac Invitational, and there's hundreds of people that are running in your particular a heat race, and you look, and you're somewhere in the middle of the pack, you know you're not going to win. That's not the question. The question is, are you going to finish? Because not everybody's going to win in that sense. There's only one first place. But we want to finish. We want to do our very best. We want that sense of personal accomplishment that we did what God called us to do. I may never pastor a church of 10,000 people. That's okay. I, I may do what I am doing right now for the rest of my days, and God may take me home as I am, doing no greater things than the things I'm doing right now. That doesn't mean I lost compared to somebody else who won thousands of people to Christ. I want to just simply finish the race. I want to do what I can do. I'm not looking at other people who are running maybe in a different place in the race because when I do, my eyes get off of Jesus. And yours will too. If you start focusing on other people's place in the race, if you start looking at the things that other people are doing or have been gifted at, and you go, gosh, Lord, I've been in this race for a long time. And how come they're way out in the front of the pack and I'm back here in the back of the pack? (coughs) Family of God, all of us, starting with me, need to focus on finishing. Finish the race. Do what you have been called to do and do it excellently unto the Lord. And I have stewarded the faith, kept the faith, That faith was put in the bank account of my life by Jesus Christ. The faith I have, I didn't fabricate. We need to remember that faith is a gift from God. What are you doing with your faith is another way to look at this passage. Have you kept the faith? Have you used the faith that you've been given to stay in the race and finish the race? Are you a steward of the faith of God? Or have you given it away? Have you packed it up for a later day? You know, I know a lot of people, it's almost like they they think they can store their faith in some jar somewhere and pull it out when they need it. Faith is to be used for the glory of God. 
Faith is not a commodity that you store up. It's something that you ask for a refreshing in every day so that you can continue to run the race. It's rather like Gatorade. You, you, you know, you kind of need to be replenished in fluids and electrolytes and a little bit of sugar to keep running. Amen? If you're going to continue to run, you need more faith. That's why Scripture reminds us, Lord, increase my faith. I need more faith to run. Because I, I can tell you, there, there are times when you look at the race and you go, man, I'm like six miles from the end and it, it's just, I'm not going to win and there's a bunch of people in front of me. My legs hurt and my chest is throbbing and my head is splitting. Why am I doing this, God? Do you at times spiritually feel like that? It's like, God, why am I even doing this? Nobody's hearing what I have to say. My, my own... Friends and family don't seem to get it. Why am I in the race? Be a steward of the faith that you have and use it for the glory of the Lord. And finally, and I love this, there is laid up for me, Paul says for me, he's not saying in a a light manner, he's saying I know that I know that I know that when I cross that finish line, I'm going to get a crown. There's a, there's a crown for me of righteousness, he says, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not me only, but also those who have loved his appearing. Family of God, as we, as we look at this first part of this final section here, would you lay hold of that truth? God is faithful and he is just. And he sees your labor of love and he knows what you're going through. He knows that other people have misused you. He knows that people have said evil things against you. He, he knows it's been hard for you to run the race. He knows that you haven't received maybe the things that even you're entitled to while you've been on this earth. But know this, there's a crown that's waiting. There's a crown for simply finishing the race, for running the race, for staying in the race. And you're going to get that from the righteous judge, the one who looks at your life and says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in to my kingdom of rest. You know, it's kind of an interesting thing that happens at the end of a long distance race, especially once you get over like a half marathon distance. You kind of get into this little euphoria towards the end of the race to where you're just, and it happens in cycling. I think it happens in most things to where distance is involved in most athletic endeavors. You, you get into this little zone to where you're like euphoric. You can see the finish line. You just like the, your second wind kicks in. You just like you don't even know where the energy comes from because you can see the finish line. You know you're almost there. You you recognize that across that is the final aid station and and there's the the cliff bars waiting and there's the drinks that are available and you're going to go have lunch and you're going to you're not going to have to run anymore you're going to get to rest that's exactly how the kingdom of god is you're going to cross that finish line and take your last breath on this earth and you're going to pass into the glories of heaven and you're going to sit down at that everlasting supper of his goodness and where his joy is full and forevermore and and you're not going to have to get up and, and do that race again. It's just a one-time deal. You just need to finish. You need to get across the finish line and be rewarded uh, for what you've done. 
in, in his one of his books, Charles Spurgeon was writing. It was in lectures to my students, and uh, he wrote about a young preacher who was complaining to him. This was back in the 1800s, and uh, Spurgeon asked him a question uh, because the young man had said, "You know, I'm really kind of depressed that my church isn't very big." You know, sometimes in ministry you you start to compare stuff. You start to look at numbers and you look at people and faces and, you know, even even the prosperous things. I mean, I, I had somebody say, oh, gosh, your parking lot looks really good, you know. And it was in a jealous way, quite frankly. It's like, man, I can't believe, yeah, you know, you guys got a clean parking lot. And I'm sitting there thinking of, I'm sitting there thinking about, you know, we all do that at times, don't we? We look at what other people are doing or have done or accomplished or the things that they have compared to the things that maybe we haven't done or don't have. And we get a little bit jealous. We need to not do that because God hasn't called us all to the same thing the same way. He's called us to run the race that we've been called to. And so Spurgeon uh, asked the young man after he'd complained about the size of his church, and he asked him, he said, how many do you preach to? And he said, oh, about a hundred. And he looked at the young man and he said, that will be more than sufficient on the day of judgment. Think about it. That's true for each of us. However many it is, and whatever place you have in the race, and wherever you are, I'm, I'm telling you something. Whether you are the first person into heaven, or whether you are the last person into heaven, it's all good. Okay, You're not going to get there going, man, I can't believe 3,854,642 people beat me. You're going to be in heaven in the glories of the Lord, and you're going to be going, yes. We need to rest in that. Not, not in the things that we think of while we're on this earth. It'll be enough. We don't need to worry about the statistics, the, the attendance, the cash flow. You know, as pastors, we do that. One of the things, quite frankly, I hate about pastors' conferences is all the, everybody walks around, oh, how big is your congregation? How large is your church? How many services do you have? And after a while, you're just like, I don't care. Your church is bigger than mine. I started saying that one time, and I kind of got in trouble. I said, undoubtedly, your church is larger than mine. It's okay. I don't care. Because it's God's church anyway. So whoever's in your church is also in my church. So, nah. <laughs> By default, amen? There's only one body of Christ, so we're all in it. So you just have to be located in a few different satellite campuses, okay? So whether it's five here and 5,000 over there, it's just one body of Christ. The question ought to be asked, how's the race going? How's the race going? How are you running? How are you as a steward? Are you fighting the good fight? Not how big is it? Not how many is it? How, how are you doing in the battle? Can, can I join with you? You see, sometimes I think we focus in on the wrong things. There's three basic things that Paul says here. As he says to do the work of the evangelist, all he's saying is let your light shine for the Lord. Not everybody has been given the gift of evangelism. 
I know people that, quite frankly, I, you, you can talk to them, and you know they're not ever going to sit down and preach an evangel, evangelistic sermon to anybody. But I can tell you this, the love of Jesus is very, very visible in their lives. And they draw people to the Lord. They, they are constantly using their own life in an evangelistic way. That's what's being said. Would you do what God's called you to do to draw people to Jesus? That can be in all kinds of different environments. I know people by their financial savvy draw people to the Lord. I know people by their mental abilities draw people to the Lord. I know some ladies that draw people to Jesus with their, with their cakes. I, I want to get saved again sometimes when I get some, you know, I'm like, yes. This is like from God. Use what you are and who you are to draw people to Jesus. Love them into the kingdom. Each of us has a place to do that. In verse 6, we see Paul really looking outside of his own problems. I mean, he's going to die. He's going to die. He's looking outside of his problems so he can finish well. He wants to finish well. If he's simply focused on the problems, and here's how this works. You're in that race. You're running. You're, you're there in that middle section of the race to where everything hurts. If you're not looking ahead and all you're doing is looking at what's in front of you, you're going to stop. You've got to look ahead. You've got to see that there is an end to this race that we're on. And I absolutely do not want you to all walk around, oh, man, I'm in a race, I'm going in a boxing match, and I'm going to, I hope I survive. No, I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying is, is that God is sufficient no matter where you are in the race. But you've got to focus on the end. You've got to keep your eyes on Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, as we're going to see when we, Continue in our study in the book of Hebrews. The author and the finisher of our faith. The, the one who's going to get you there. He's going to get me there. He's going to get us there. We need to focus ahead if we want to finish well. And so to do that, he says, my departure's at hand. What a crazy word that is. It's used in the New Testament in a number of different ways. One of them uh, is to hoist an anchor and to set sail. He says, you know, your boat isn't going to go very far if you're anchored to the bottom. You, you have to count your own life not so dear. You, you need to kind of pull the anchor up and say, Lord, I'm going. If you've ever sailed off the coast of California, there's, there's kind of this point on the horizon where the coastline disappears. It's kind of a weird thing. You start to crest over the curvature of the earth, and if you get out far enough and you look back, there's no land. You're kind of out there by faith to some degree. And of course, you have a compass and or GPS or a Loran or whatever you're using to navigate by. But the bottom line is you can no longer see the coastline. Family of God, are you willing to pull up the anchor so that you can sail where God wants you to go? Or are you so fixed on the things of this earth and this life and the things this world has to offer that you're unwilling, you want to stay in shore, near harbor? Now, it's safer to be sure. 
but it's not very productive. And so he uses this word also means to take down a tent. You know, have you ever tried to move a tent while it's still up? Especially those big cabin tents. It's an impossibility, isn't it? Because there aren't enough people in your campground to move that thing around because they're, they're not meant to be moved. They're meant to be taken down to be moved. And the picture is that if you're going to go anywhere in the Lord, you have to be willing, willing to be packed up, taken down. And in order to do that, you've got to commit to the journey. Because say, you know what, I'm going to put my stuff in storage if necessary. And again, before anyone freaks out, I'm not telling you to all go put your stuff in storage. But what I am saying is what Paul's looking at here, he's, he's saying, you know what, I'm going to focus on the finish line. And if the things that I lose in this life, if I put them in the proper perspective, then I'm going to be able to be used to the Lord no matter what I'm doing. But if you're focused on the things of this earth, you're going to be held back. Your tent's going to be open. You're going to be staking that puppy to the ground. You're going to put two rain flies on it and a couple of tarps up in the trees. And you're going to, you ever seen those people in the campgrounds that you look at them? How did they get all that stuff in their car? You know, they got, they got like chaise lounge chairs that are made out of nylon and, you know, the folding picnic table that seats 114 people. It's just, I don't even know how they, constructed those things and they turn on their their lantern and it's like 170,000 lumens it, it like the space shuttle can see it yeah they've got so much junk with them you're going man if they ever had to move they couldn't go you see sometimes in the accumulation of stuff and wealth and things and I've been there family of god i can tell you you can't move. You can't go. You can't be used. Because you are so tied down to the campground in which you pitched your tent that you can't do anything for the Lord. You're tied to the things of the earth. Paul says, my departure is at hand. It was used in two other ways. Letting go a farm animal from its yoke. Taking the yoke off of its neck. Paul says, you know what, when I leave this earth, I'm unyoked. Hallelujah. That's the case. When you finally take your last breath on this earth, you are no longer an ox. You're, you're suited for the glories of heaven. You're going to get a new body that's not made with hands, but is suited for the glories of heaven. And, and so we need to look at life that way. I don't want to be so tied to this earth that I long for the things of this earth. Now, having said that, in Jesus' name, enjoy what God's given you on this earth. We of all people should look at the things of life and have them in the right perspective. But not worship them. And not hold them in such a place that we, we aren't any good to God. Because when you get to heaven, none of the stuff here is going to matter. You're going to be set free. You're going to be loosed. You're going to be sailing freely out on the ocean. You are not going to ever have to pack up your tent again. So enjoy what God's given you while you're here. But please don't get so attached to this earth that you forget about heaven. That you forget about what God's called you to do. The second thing Paul was looking back on his accomplishments so he could finish well. He says, you know what? I fought it. 
I've run it, and I've been a good steward of it. He said, you know what, I don't have any regrets. Can, can you say in your life you don't have any regrets about how you're living your life right now for the Lord? And again, this is not to cast any guilt on anyone. It's a do some self-examination. Say, Lord, is there a way I can fight a little harder? Is there a way I can run a little stronger? Is there a way, possibly, God, that you would have me be a better steward of the things that you've entrusted to me for your glory and for your kingdom? That's all. Look back on your accomplishments and say, what do they count for? Do they count for the kingdom? Paul was looking back so he could look ahead, in essence. And then thirdly, Paul was looking towards the the victory, the finish line, the crown. He was looking at the end so that he could finish well. In other words, he got some extra strength by realizing at the end of the race, man, I'm almost there. As I've gotten older, I can tell you it's one of the things I look forward to. I know it sounds a little bit strange, and there are people, well, you know, you, you probably ought to see a psychologist for that. I've had people say, well, it's kind of a little weird. You know what? I look forward to going home to be with Jesus. Now, I don't particularly want to go today. I love my life. I love my life. And I believe God has some things he still wants to do while we're still on this earth. So I'm good with all of that. But you know what? As I look ahead, I'm like, if this is this good, and here's how I want you to see this. If this is this good. Can you imagine what heaven's going to be like? Hallelujah. You know, if, you, if you've ever sat in Yosemite Valley and looked up at the stars in the night sky, and got, if that's how good earth is, how good's heaven going to be? You ever sat on the beach and watched the sun go into the ocean and just felt that last ray of warmth going, and then you start that bonfire and you make your s'mores and you burn your lips. If you've done that... <laughs> You know, we all have those things that we look back. You know how you, you, you remember things in your life that are just spectacularly amazing to you? You know, you kind of cling to them in those moments where things aren't going so good and you just think back on those things that, that you know, you've been allowed to experience and they're just wonderful. Can you imagine an entire existence full of nothing but wonderful? That's what heaven is. He's looking forward. He's going, man, my life has been pretty amazing. Think about who this is. This is a man who who counted his own life not dear for the cause of the gospel. He's now awaiting his own beheading in a Roman prison, and he's looking forward to heaven. In other words, family of God, there is a point to your existence while you're here on this earth when you live for the Lord. If you are living for you, and you're living for what you can get out of this life, you're going to be miserable in your last days. I was reading an article about Steve Jobs' last days on earth. Do you know the thing that he was thinking of in his last moments of life? About using what he had accumulated in wealth to sue Google for developing the Android operating system. You see, he was a Buddhist. That's what he was looking forward to. That his legacy would be that after he's gone, his company could go after Google to sue them into oblivion. He called it thermonuclear economic war. I want to be looking forward to heaven 
I've done enough warring while I've been on this earth, both for good and for bad. In Jesus, that's what happens. He goes on now in verse 9 as we wind this chapter down and these two books down. Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Notice the contrast here. You can't love the Lord and love this present world at the same time. You just can't. And again, I'm not saying you can't have nice things and a nice home and nice cars and nice feet. None of that's true. Not saying you can't enjoy life. But you can only have one Lord. And if you love this earth more than you love Jesus, you've got a problem. It's that simple. He, he, he loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica and Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Now he's going to name a whole bunch of people here. And some of these people were sent out for good and some of them left for, with ill reason. Only Luke is with me. He's literally alone in Rome with Dr. Luke. Now, some of that was by design. Some of that was because people were unfaithful. Will it be said of you that you were faithful to the end? Will you be a faithful husband? Will you be a faithful wife? Will you be a faithful father, a faithful mother, a faithful friend, a faithful co-laborer in Christ, a faithful member of the church? Will you be faithful? Because faithfulness matters, folks. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark, that's John Mark, and bring him with you, for he is useful to me in ministry. And Tychius I've sent to Ephesus, and bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments, which were likely the letter that, you're, that you've already studied, the first letter to Timothy, but probably his letters to the church. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. And may the Lord repay him according to his works. Family of God, are you willing to let things go enough to know that God is the judge of all? For indeed, Scripture declares that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. You see, sometimes we get so focused in on making things right or getting even that we become useless to God. And I can tell you from my own life experience, I spent a lot of time in, in my own mind, so useless to the Lord because I just wanted to get even. Anger, bitterness, vengeance had welled up inside of me to the point that, that I was worthless to God. I, I thought about night and day getting even. Let God have that part of your life. If you've been harmed, if you've been hurt, there is no amount of getting even that will ever make it better. None. You won't feel good. If that person that's harmed you dies, you won't feel good. You'll still feel miserable. In the meantime, you'll be worthless to the Lord. Give it up. Let God have it. The Lord knows what He's doing with that regard, and you also must be aware of Him, for He has greatly resisted our words. And so there are people that you're going to meet in ministry that are up to no good. Live with it. They're there. But don't spend your time trying to worry about what they're thinking or what they're doing. Because if you do, you won't be focusing on the things that you've been called to do, and you will be miserable.
don't focus on them. Don't give that person, in essence, the satisfaction of knowing that you're distraught over that situation. Because to some degree, you're empowering them. Cast your cares upon the Lord, knowing that He cares for you, Scripture says. Let God deal with that person who's been mean-spirited and horrible to you. He is able. If you want to be a conqueror, you need to give God those things which you cannot handle. Otherwise, you're going to try and handle them, and you will be buried by your own insufficiency. You will not be able to handle them. You will be buried by your own insufficiency in handling those situations and problems. You'll just simply spend all of your time trying to worry about and fix things that you cannot fix, ultimately. My first defense, there stood no one with me, for all forsook me. You know, that that is just an amazing sentence when you think about what he's just said. He said, I'm going to fight. I'm going to run. I'm going to be a good steward. I'm going to fulfill my ministry. Timothy, you do the same thing. If no one stands with you, will you stand? Notice what he says. May it not be charged against them. That's the heart of the Lord, by the way. For your enemies, for those that have used you, abused you, mistreated you, God's heart towards them is not destruction, it's repentance. That's why when you look at your Bible, you're going to find that there's not much emphasis on getting even. There's a whole lot of emphasis on seeing people restored. And the more I think we focus on that restoration process, the better off we are. Because we're joining God in His will in a positive way to seek something that will benefit you both. Now, admittedly, I have prayed a lot of David's prayers. You know, Lord, break the teeth out of their mouth. Crush their bones into dust. God, may they you know, have the fleas of a thousand camels infest their armpits. I, I've, I've prayed those things to my shame. I, I've said, you know, Lord, you know, and kill them. It's not beneficial. But when you pray for those who spitefully use you or persecute you or falsely accuse you, and you bear up underneath that and you keep running anyway... They are completely demoralized. That person no longer has power over you anymore. When you have joy and they're over with all of their influence and all of their words are saying things to try and destroy you and you don't give in to that, you are indeed heaping coals upon their head. You're saying, you know what? I'm going to keep serving Jesus. You want to keep doing that, you're going to destroy you, but I'm not going with you. Be faithful, be diligent. And why? Why would Paul write these things? Because I think it's very easy for us to focus on uh, the things of this earth. And furthermore, I think there are times uh, that, that we get so focused on the things of the earth that we don't even use our heads. We don't even think rightly. You know, God's given you a mind for a reason. Can I remind you of that? You know, so I, I, I will confess a weakness that I have. When people tell me that, well, you know, I'm just walking by faith and I'm not paying my bills, I get a little cheesed. That is not faith. 
That is disobedience to the things of God. And it's not faith for you to not pay your bills. It, it is not faith if you wake up in the morning, well, I'll just leave at 10 and maybe I can get to LAX at 11. That's not faith. That is stupidity. That is not using your head. You have been given a mind to use it for the glory of the Lord. You need to think. Paul's thinking here. He's being honest here. He's reminding people of both the good and the bad. And he's saying, you guys need to think. It, it's, it is absolutely not faith when you, when you test God. When you know something is wrong and you go ahead and enter into that particular situation anyway, that is not faith. That's testing God. And you're asking for a spanking. And so Paul is basically saying here, I know who was on my team and I know who wasn't on my team. Don't trust the guys. You know, don't be silly is another way of saying it. You know, Alexander the coppersmith means you harm. He meant me harm. He's trying to destroy the work that we're doing. Use your head. Some in Paul's circle were not faithful. They bailed out. But what he was really focusing in on was this whole long list of people that were faithful. And count them. You know, I, I look, uh, there are so many people in my life that have been uh, beside me and faithful, none greater than my precious bride of 35 years. None. Oh, how in the world she's managed that, I don't know. Yeah, faith. <laughs> For sure. She has absolutely enough faith. But, you know, it, we, we need to have that balance of faith and faith that works. And faith that works, I think, so, think a lot of times is when we ponder those things and go, Lord, this doesn't make any sense. God is a God of order. He's not a God of disorder. And, and to a very large degree, he's also a God of logic. And I'm not telling you to cast out your faith and just simply be led by your mind and logic either. I'm saying those things can work in perfect harmony. You, you don't have to have one without the other. And so when you see things that don't look like they're okay, that could be God going, it's not okay. Listen and trust those people around you to hear from the Lord as well. That's why it's important for us to have godly friends. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, great passage of Scripture. In verse 9, it begins, For two are better than one. Amen. You know, one of the things is you, as you get older and you've been married for a long time, you realize that God, uh, in His sovereign plan, balances me out with my bride. Two are better than one. There are things I've been through in my life, I just can't even imagine having gone through those things alone. It, it would have surely been too much for me. Because they have a good reward for their labor. Two people, quite frankly, the obvious inference is that two people are stronger than one. Amen? You know, there are a lot of things in life that you just simply can't do by yourself, but two people is sufficient. For if they fail, one will lift up his companion, but woe unto him who falls when he's alone. 
And I, I've, I've had some crazy experiences in my time as a backpacker and rock climber. I, I found a guy, we were up on Takeets Rock. If you've been to Mount San Jacinto up by Idlewild, Takeets Rock is that big rock that's to the south of the south end of the valley there at, at Idlewild. And we were climbing up a route that wasn't horribly difficult. We got up there and we found a guy hanging upside down by one leg. He had been climbing alone. He had, he had protection for himself. But you know what? Once he fell, it's over. You cannot help yourself when you're hanging upside down 500 feet off the valley floor. There is nothing you can do apart from grab a knife and cut yourself free, which has kind of a bad ending. Gravity takes over. Rocks are hard. It's not a good thing. You see, he wanted to prove that he could climb that route by himself. And there's a lot of people who are like that. I just want to do it. In Jesus' name, you better be careful about what you tackle alone. Because you get in trouble, you're really in trouble when you're alone. Again, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm, verse 11 says. But how will one keep warm alone? And though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And three cold, threefold cord is not quickly broken. When you add the Lord into that mix, you're good. You're golden. You're all right. You're going to make it. That's why family is so important. Husband and wife and Jesus is formidable. Why do you think Satan hates family so much? You see, Paul had experienced that in his life. And he had lots of faithful friends alongside of him. Verse 17 says, notice this. Now, in the context of some of those friends not being faithful and some of those friends being sent out. In other words, he's now alone, only Luke's with him. He says in verse 17, but the Lord stood with me. Amen. No matter how alone you are, anywhere at any time, the Lord is with you. And you and the Lord is a majority 100% of the time. You and the Lord is victorious 100% of the time. The question is, will you receive that victory? Now, it may mean that you're going to go through something difficult, but it will be a victory in the Lord's eyes. And strengthen me so that the message might be preached fully through me. Now, now Paul, if you remember, as we studied this in the book of Acts, they're in the very closing chapters of the book of Acts, he could have exercised initially his Roman citizenship and been set free. And he chose not to do that on one occasion. And now he's back in Rome and he's being tried as, as someone who's subversive to the cause of Caesar. He could have appealed to Nero. He, he could have done all kinds of things to get out of the situation. But he says, you know what? This is it. I'm willing to take uh, this course of action, because I know the Lord is with me, and He wants to fully preach the gospel through me, that all the Gentiles might hear. If Paul had given up and faded into existence, uh, you know, some island mentality or lifestyle, how powerful do you think his life would have been compared to how it was when he gave his life to the very last drop for the cause of the kingdom? You see, when people expend themselves in any great cause, they have done all they can do. And their testimony is as powerful as it really can be. But the opposite is also true. There are a lot of people with tremendous gifts that when the going gets tough, they get going. They give up. They give in. He stayed the course. 
I also was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And whether he's talking about Caesar or whether he's talking about Satan or whether he's talking about sin, it doesn't matter. The Lord is sufficient to deliver you from whatever lion is roaring outside of your door. You can trust him on that. We don't know for sure which of those three things he was referring to, but the the bottom line is Satan seeks to destroy you. This world is not your friend. It may look like it. It may even say it is, but it's not. And you still have a sin nature. Praise God, it's been conquered by the work of the Holy Spirit, and you no longer sin like you used to, but you're still a sinner, and so am I. He's greater than that. He's able to deliver you. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. Notice the certainty and the assurity with which Paul speaks here at the end of his life. He's not going, well, I hope or I think. It's the most pitiful thing. When Pope John Paul died, one of the last things that he said to a group of of bishops was that I hope I'm good enough to reach heaven. He said, I hope I'm good enough to reach heaven. That's not the kind of certainty that Paul had. He said, I know. I know in whom I am believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which he has committed unto the day of Christ Jesus. We're going to see that as we continue our journey here, as we get into the book of Hebrews deeper. Your, Your sure place is heaven, family of God. And to him be the glory forever and ever. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, the household of Omniserus, Erastus stayed in Corinth, and Trophimus I left in Miletus sick. Do your uttermost to come to me before winter. It's dangerous out there. In other words, he's saying, and Eulibus greets you, as well as Prudence and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. And the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, and your spirit grace be with you. And when the lion roars, remember this, you'll be delivered out of the mouth of the lion. All these faithful friends that fought alongside of Paul and with Paul and uh, were his strength in times of weakness. If you look at Paul's writing between Paul's letters and the book of Acts, there are over a hundred people mentioned by name. That's a pretty big family of faithful people. Amen. May it be said of us that we have a large family of faithful people willing to go the extra mile, willing to lay down their own life for their friends, willing to do uh, what it is that God's called us to do, willing to restore, willing to leave the things of God in God's hands. And, and when someone is mean-spirited and evil to you, that you trust God with his processes of dealing with that situation, that you don't unduly spend time trying to work those things out yourself, You have to watch out for the fake friends like Alexander the coppersmith who profess to love you. You need to be wise. You need to use your head. And as we do those things, as we walk on this earth, as as we experience God's grace, I love the way Paul ends this letter. It's his classic signature. He's identifying that I wrote this. Grace, God's unmerited favor be with you. Because we're not going to earn God's favor, amen? We're just not. I want to be well pleased, but earn his favor can't happen. His grace is with you. And the result of that is we have his peace to walk through those difficulties. And the glory of this is, is if you really look at this passage, 
What he's saying is, is we have an opportunity as the body of Christ to either be used for the Lord's glory and for his kingdom in each other's lives and to be greater than we are as individuals. Heavenly of God, if you lay hold of nothing else today, we together are greater than we are as individuals. We represent greater giftings, greater potential, greater power, greater finances. We are greater together than we are as individuals. That does not diminish for one second the value of an individual. It simply states and really overstates the obvious that as we join forces and we're faithful to the Lord and then faithful to each other, we can accomplish more together than we ever could alone. And that's a picture really of the body of Christ of the church. May we be faithful as friends and faithful as family. May we be faithful in the word and may we finish well. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for these people, Lord. I thank you for the servants and the body of Christ as as we experience it here in this place. And Lord, we ask that you would create in us a heart that remains faithful to you, remains faithful to your word, remains faithful to friendships and relationships, faithful in evangelism. God, we just simply ask you to help us to run this race that we're in and to finish well. And so, God, we bless you. Lord, we thank you this morning for this time in your word. Lord, we thank you for those people in our own lives individually uh, that have helped us get where we are. We pray that we would not only see that as a challenge to each of us individually. Lord, there are places where we can help. May we do so. Lord, create in us a heart of faithfulness. We bless you. We thank you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord. Amen.